Hey, Upper Room. Kevin Tips here. So glad that you found your way to this week's podcast. In this message, I share on the gift of repentance. And the notion of repentance is certainly not a very popular idea in our modern culture. And in fact, if we look back over church history, it has maybe been something that has been somewhat misapplied and misused. But in this message, I look at how a lifestyle of faith, living in faith, is actually a lifestyle that's marked by the gift of repentance and how this beautiful gift actually positions us to see God rightly, to see ourselves rightly, and also to see one another rightly. So I pray that as you listen, maybe some preconceived notions are challenged some and the Spirit of God actually leads you into greater reception of this beautiful gift that we call repentance. And so I bless you as you listen. What I want to share on tonight, really not what I want to share and what I felt led to share on, um, requires requires me to address some elephants in the room right up front. Um, I felt uh, led by the Lord to teach on the gift of repentance. Yay! (laughs) The gift of repentance. Now, hold up. If, now, there's certain words that carry baggage, and this is one of them. Uh, We're going to talk about repentance tonight. Uh, We're going to talk about sin tonight, and I'm going to do that unapologetically. (laughs) However... I may not do it in the way that you're expecting. And so if you're in the room and someone dragged you here or, you know, you're here because they promised you a meal afterwards and you're not really sure where you land with the whole Jesus thing, you're kind of exploring it and fleshing it out and you're already a little weirded out by what you've just observed with the flags and the sword, you know, you're in good company. We're, we're happy that you're here. I was once in your shoes and not this specific room, but the previous one. In very much the same boat, you are in the best spot. You are free to wrestle however you wish. Um, But if that word, if all of a sudden it's like, oh, crud, that guy's going to speak on sin. Here we go. He's going to make me feel cruddy and talk about all this stuff and use a battering ram. And um, I would ask you to listen. Give me a chance to perhaps um, share something with you that is unexpected. If you're willing to receive it, there's a gift for you tonight. And I promise. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Now, on the flip side, because listen, well, let me go back. Broader culture hates these concepts. Why? Uh, Because it's seeking to really deceive a generation in the lie that Everything means anything and nothing means nothing. Truth, I lost you there. It's okay, I'll we'll go back. Truth is now, we're being told, completely subjective. There is no standard. There's no absolute. If it's true for you, it's true for you, baby. If it's true for me, it's true for me. So don't step on my turf. I won't step on your turf. As long as you're not hurting anybody, you do you. I'm going to do me. Whatever. Truth can be whatever it is. Now, that would be fine if it was true. And that would be fine if it wasn't indeed hurting people. But open Facebook. Watch the news. The mass confusion, dissension, disunity, dishonor that is rampant in our culture is because nothing means nothing. And if nothing means nothing, then you mean nothing if I don't want you to mean anything to me. It's totally damaging our value as God-created, God-loved image bearers of God himself. It's doing a lot of damage. But it hates this notion of sin because that means there's a standard and repentance means something have to change and I like being comfortable, so leave me alone, right? So we're going against that current. As believers, we are going against the current. But it's important to know that repentance is a gift, It is a gift, and we'll get there in a minute. On the flip side, there may be folks in the room who grew up in church that was different. And 
the gift, maybe let's give the benefit of the doubt and say the intentions were good, but the execution was bad. And maybe over church history, we've seen examples of, um, of the proclamation of repentance with limited understanding or revelation of the fullness of the gospel and the sufficiency of the finished work of the cross. And all of a sudden, the gift of repentance becomes a battering ram and actually no longer is a gift and becomes a threat. And you see people standing on corners with placards and billboards quoting verses saying, turn or burn. And maybe you grew up in a context that was religious and oppressive that manipulated the gift into a weapon. And if you're triggered by the word repentance, then I would ask you to give me a chance to allow yourself to hear the truth and maybe reclaim the gift of repentance that perhaps you've let go of in the pendulum swing of, of the grace of God, right? Because repentance is a gift. <laughs> um, and so we're working from these two different angles, and I think it's just important when there's elephants in the room to acknowledge them straight up. So this is gonna be countercultural, but it's not gonna be turn or burn, I promised you, right? <laughs> All right. A life of faith, walking by faith, is a life marked by continual and perpetual repentance. You cannot walk by faith and not have a lifestyle patterned by repentance. You also cannot truly walk in repentance if you are not in faith. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin, okay? Walking in repentance, walking by faith in repentance is to choose to walk in a life of ever, <laughs> ever increasing glory, joy, freedom, abundance, wholeness, connection to self, life, others, and God, it is freedom, C complete freedom. Repentance is good, okay? Um, <laughs> when I knew that, okay, we're going to go here, I immediately called Aaron Smith, who <laughs> is our young adults pastor, because I know on Sunday nights, it's a lot of young adults, and I said, man, I'm, I, I'm 40, and so... Um, there's a generational divide a little bit in terms of what we're bringing to the table when we start talking about this. And so when you hear repentance, what comes to mind? And I loved, like right off the bat, this is what he said. Repentance is the believer's best friend. I love that because it's true. Repentance is the believer's best friend. Why? Because repentance is about Jesus. And repentance positions us to receive more of Jesus. And re repentance actually opens our eyes to see Jesus more. And Jesus is our best friend. And so repentance is the believer's best friend. Uh, Martin Luther, he uh, was a um, gentleman in the 1500s that was at the very forefront of the Protestant Reformation. Um, hung some thesis, some criticisms on the door of the Catholic Church, which at the time um, had kind of lost its way a little bit. And so um, Martin Luther uh, was kind of one of many, actually, that birthed the Protestant Revolution or Reformation. And a whole denomination was started um, in his legacy, and I happened to grow up in that denomination. And I'm so grateful because um, the plumb line of truth, of the gospel of grace, law and gospel, the, the sufficiency of what um, was purchased for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this was so central to my um, growing up. It was foundational, and I'm so grateful for it. But he has this quote on repentance. I want to read it to you. He basically says the same thing Aaron says, but in a different way. So you're, you're in good company, Aaron. 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the whole of the life of the believer should be one of repentance. Let me read it one more time. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the whole life of the believer should be one of repentance. Repentance is not how we walk through the doorway of salvation. Repentance is the lifestyle that allows us to abide in God. We don't repent and then we're done. We are ever and always repenting, turning away from what isn't truth, love, grace, and real so that we can look God face to face to be reminded he's better than we know and that he values us far more than we could ever imagine. We are always in the process of repentance, or at least that is the goal. Um, In Acts 11, uh, you might be familiar with the story or the context for the story. Peter has a vision of a big blanket dropped down from heaven, and all these unclean animals are on it, right? Pigs and stuff that Jews weren't allowed to eat. And he hears the Lord say, kill and eat. And Peter's like, I can't, that's against the law. And God's response, I love it. I apply this to my life all the time. He said, do not call common what I have made clean. So Peter's already like, okay, what's that about? Well, immediately this group of guys come. Anyway, long story, they follow him back. And they end up sharing the gospel with some Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit falls on them and fills them. And Peter's like, wait, this isn't supposed to happen. This is for the Jews. And all of a sudden, he is reminded of the words of Jesus that said, John the Baptist, baptized in water, but I will baptize in the Holy Spirit. And he realized, oh my gosh, Gentiles are going to get in on this thing too. And at the end of chapter 11, um, those that he's with said when they heard these things, um, well, actually, I'm going to start in verse... um, 15, as I began to speak, this is Peter telling the story, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he did on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I would stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has gifted the repentance that leads to life. (laughs) Thank God. But that's why we're in this room, okay? Because God gifted us the repentance that leads to life to life. This is what this one verse in scripture tells me, okay? Repentance is not a work to do, it's a gift to receive. It's a big one. Repentance doesn't start with my awareness of my sin. It starts in the goodness of God. And (laughs) it makes me really alive. (laughs) It produces life, 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 life. It's not a work, it's a gift. You don't earn a gift, you just receive it. It doesn't start with my sin. It's not really about that. It's about him. It's about seeing him. It's about receiving him. It originates in God. And lastly, it produces life. Repentance starts with him, is sustained by him, and leads to more of him. This is why it's amazing. Am I starting to change your mind, naysayers? (laughs) Okay. Um, repentance, <laughs> repentance, sorry, I'm in a cheeky mood tonight, I don't know why. Um, repentance, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I know, I was praying during worship, I was like, get me drunk, God, in the spirit, in the spirit, if that's new language, we become aware of the presence we get, he takes over, it's fun, it's our birthright as children. Um, <laughs> I do feel a little drunk in the spirit. I'm not gonna... <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. 
Okay. Repentance is central. It is central to our faith. It is central to our faith. It is core to the teachings of Jesus. What was Jesus saying all the time? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is near. What's the kingdom? Peace, righteousness, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it's as if the message, the very central message of Jesus was, hey, turn around. Stop looking at what you're looking at, how you're looking at it. Flip around. Look at me because fullness of life, righteousness, dignity, wholeness, joy that can't be touched by circumstance, and soul peace anxiety-free, quiet rest on the inside is so close, you can reach out and grab it, repent. This is the message of Jesus. But what I love is the context in which this message came up so often. If you go back and read the Gospels, so often when the message of repentance comes forward, it's not in response to someone's failure and sin. It's actually in the midst of Jesus performing miracles. He's healing bodies, resurrecting dead girls, giving dignity to women, which had none in that age. Miraculously feeding and providing for the multitude when food was very hard to come by and a luxury for many in that era. In the context of abundance, of blessing, of multiplication, of healing, of miracles, he's saying repent. And I love that because it proves my point. That the concept of repentance is absolutely about greater awareness of his goodness. It's not to solve a problem. It's not to fix your problem of sin. That problem's actually already been fixed on the cross 2,000 years ago. What it does is it positions you to remember that. And it positions you to receive grace to apprehend, apply, and walk that out. <laughs> Repentance is central to how we work out our salvation. Right? We're not just saved when we pray a prayer and then we're gravy baby and at some point we'll just you know, get taken up into heaven and all's well. We are, we are saved and being saved. And one day, ultimately, when he splits the sky and hovers down to earth, it's going to be so weird. And we're in a moment transfigured. In a moment. We will be ultimately completely and utterly saved in glory. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. But now we are daily, moment to moment, in the process of salvation. Remember, salvation is not just a ticket to heaven. Salvation is sozo. It is healing, wholeness, body, soul, and spirit. It is fullness of life, fullness of inheritance, full power, fullness of self-control, joy, peace, you name it, right? We are, we are ever being saved in this way. And repentance is core to this process of working out our salvation as we're perpetually looking at him for how and who he is and changing the way that we see self, others, and circumstances in light of the truth of who he is. It's core to working out our salvation. It's how we express our faith and position ourselves to see him rightly, encounter him in new ways. And it ultimately is a avenue of grace that conforms us into his image and allows us to become like him. So what is repentance? Let's get a little bookish here. So if you're new to the Bible, I have no idea, but if you're familiar, we're gonna do a little history lesson. If you're new to the Bible, you have Old Testament, you have New Testament, right? The Old Testament is a story of God specifically through the people of Israel. And in the Old Testament, um, there is a dispensation, fancy theological word, 
but the dispensation, the rules of how God and man were to interact were defined by the law. Sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Everything got broken, busted, and yucky. And so God said, okay, for us to continue in any form of relationship, here's a bunch of rules and regulations that will help position you to walk blameless so that we can still have interaction, right? This was the rules of engagement. And the law from God was good. Why? Because it succeeded in its purpose, which was to show us that he was perfect, we were not, and as hard as we could try, we never could live up and into his perfect law. What it did was it created this deep ache in the heart of humanity as we became aware we're never going to be able to do this thing. We're never going to be able to do this. We have to be saved. We have to be saved. They were in a cycle of failing, guilt, shame, sacrifice, temporary atonement, only to muck up again and have to go through the same process. Guilt and shame was ever present before them. And this was the reality in the old covenant. So the two, there's two words in Hebrew that um, are most often translated as repent. Um, and the first is, I could be butchering this pronunciation, give me grace. I'm not a scholar, I just have the internet. Um, <laughs> the, first, the first word is na'am. And that is translated, um, uh, it, it, it carries with it the sense of regret, right? It's the feeling of guilt, um, feeling guilty for one's actions or inaction, right? Um, what's interesting is the connotation of the word, actually the literal translation is to breathe strongly. So it's that kind of deep exhale that you do when you know you just blew it. Anyone else been there? When you do something really stupid and you go, oh man, you know that feeling? That's not, um, it's the, oh man, I just got myself in a pickle. It's that feeling uh, of regret. It's emotional. The other word is uh, teshuva. Can you say teshuva? I just wanted to hear you say it. Um, teshuva. Um, it means to return to a starting place. Uh, in essence, to pick up where you left off. What's interesting about teshuva is that it denotes um, really a change or a transformation of heart or an inward change that then works itself out into a change of behavior. So it's not about the behavior, although the behavior will change. It's about what happens on the inside when you return to a previous point of innocence and purity. Um, so here's the problem. We see already in these two words the cycle that they were in of hopelessness, which was guilt constantly before them. Have you read the law? It's exhausting. I'm like, it is exhausting. So they were constantly aware that they weren't measuring up. Constantly. So then they'd have to not only bear the weight of, ah, I messed up, but then make sure that they didn't mess up at any step of the very complicated, find the right animal and butcher it in the right way and burn it the right thing at the right time to do just the right sacrifice to hopefully appease the rage of God so that I could have temporary relief from my guilt and hopefully a change of heart so they don't do that same thing only to realize somewhere in that process you just did something else. You see, it's exhausting. It's horrible, horrible, horrible. In the new covenant, though, the dispensation changes. The rules of engagement changes because we're no longer called to relate to God by the law. Why? Because Jesus came not to get rid of it, but to fulfill it as man so that we as mankind could live into his righteousness. Thank you, Jesus. And so what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross in terms of repentance was he ended the cycle and removed the guilt. Okay, so the Greek word, <laughs> the Greek word uh, for repentance is most often uh, is metanoia. It means to reconsider, to change one's perspective and will. This also, of course, is gonna result in a change of behavior, right? But that's the product of the process. It's not the process itself. 
It's, it's a change of mind, a change of perspective about something. But this is what's interesting about metanoia, is it emphasizes the discovery of new knowledge based on a previous experience that allows us to reconsider and see things differently that actually impacts what we think, feel, and how we interact with that thing. I'm gonna say that one more time. It emphasizes the discovery of something new, a new piece of information that we didn't have before that's based on a previous experience that allows us to actually reconsider and change how we think, feel, and interact with something. Well, that's crazy telling because repentance in the new covenant is based on the new information of the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ, God in the flesh hanging on a tree for us is new information that empowers us to completely rethink everything about life, us, and one another. It actually informs entirely who we are and how we interact and engage in the world. The cross was new information for mankind, and it changed the game and removed the guilt. There's two kinds of sorrow, right? 2 Corinthians 7, let's turn there. 2 Corinthians 7, uh, starting in verse 8. Paul had written something that hurt the feelings of the Corinthians. So he's addressing it. He says, for even, starting in verse 8, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it. Though I did regret it. (laughs) Make up your mind, Paul. (laughs) For I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a little while. Don't you, I love, I love, you hear Paul as a person here. Don't you love that? Like Paul was not some like superhero. He was a dude just like we are. He was like, I know I wrote something that really hurt your feelings. I don't regret doing, well, okay, I do kind of regret it because I know I made you feel bad, but only for a little while. Like I just love that you could hear Paul in this inspired scripture. I think that's cool. Verse nine, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret or without guilt. Whereas worldly grief, grief with guilt, produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Oh my gosh, this is so crazy. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point, you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Okay, did you guys just catch that? Okay, this is crazy to me. Paul's saying, okay, there's two different kinds of sorrow in the world. Larissa taught on this last weekend that blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. There are two kinds of sorrow. Godly sorrow produces life. Why? Because we see that as they walked through the process of godly sorrow, it led them through repentance, which actually only showed them their innocence in the matter. What? I don't know if I can. I just, (laughs) godly sorrow leads us to repent, to change our mind, to reconsider based on information of the previous experience of the cross, a guilt-free change that actually solidifies in us our innocence. Why? Because our innocence is not based on us. It's based on him. What? (laughs) What the heck? Worldly sorrow 
starts with you, needs to be maintained by you, needs to be managed by you, and ends with you being more aware of you. It's why it's hopeless, heartless, and leads to death. Anything that leads you to more of you is death. Anything that leads you, that leads me to more of me is death. This is why in a minute when we talk about how do we cooperate with the Spirit of God in receiving the gift of, of, of repentance is we don't go looking for what we need to repent of. As if you would know anyway. We invite the Spirit to search us. We submit ourselves to the Word of God and to one another. And we allow Him to shine the light on where we're off. And we allow Him to inform us of what is true. And we allow Him to lead us in the gift of repentance. We don't take on that role. It's a gift to receive, not a work to accomplish. Okay. Um, in the Old Covenant, repentance involved our awareness of sin, the necessary requirements and actions to make atonement for that sin, which only led us to temporary relief from the sorrow that we failed that we mucked it up, only to find out in a moment's notice we were right back into the same cycle because we cannot we cannot hit the mark of perfection. The weight of repentance and its full process fell on us. But in the new covenant, the gift of repentance frees us from ourselves. We come before him in weakness, sure, but in remembering a previous experience, the cross of Christ. <laughs> and we reconsider our current issue, actions, words, thoughts, motives, in light of his work and his sufficiency. The new knowledge that we're reconsidering is the cross and the transformation of our heart and mind is when we see ourselves through his life, death, and resurrection, not through the lens of our weakness. That is powerful. So I'm going to give you some nuggets. I'm wording them in a way that's meant to be provocative. They're going to sound black and white, but I know they're a little bit of a both and, but I just kind of wanted to poke the goat, okay? <laughs> Um, <laughs> okay. Um, well, some of this is kind of redundant, but the process of repentance doesn't start with sin. It starts with God. John 6, 44 says um, that we can't even come to God unless he first draws us. We love God because he first loved us. If God doesn't pull us close, then we have no chance to repent. God must first actually gift us repentance, draw us to himself for us to even do that. The whole process starts with him. Um, but it also starts with a revelation of him. Uh, in 2 Peter 3.9, we're told that his, pace, his patience, the revelation of his long-suffering, the revelation of his patience leads us to repentance. Why? Because when you know how God is faithfully committed when you were aggressively rebellious for so many years and waited that sucker out with you, committed to you, hearts fixed on you, eyes fixed on you, not begrudging the process, but, but like I love this language, in his perspective of carrying um, Israel through the wilderness. I can't recall where this is. I think it's, I think it's in Isaiah, but you know, we look at their rebellion <clears throat> And their sentence to the wilderness is punishment. But from God's perspective, he implores them, do you not remember when I carried you through the wilderness like a father carries their child? Do you not remember? He was long suffering, carrying them through, not only providing manna to keep them alive, but even giving them quail when they got fussy. Like, what the heck? That's nice, you know? <clears throat> his long suffering, when we get aware of his patience, that he's not fussy, he's not demanding, he's patient. That awareness and revelation causes, causes us to see rightly, to think differently, to go into repentance. And also, Romans 2.4, his kindness. 
remember the cross, his kindness, the fact that all that he is, he's given to me. He's given to you. The fullness of joy, peace, righteousness, abundance, the freedom of having to know anything and just being able to be like the wind. Those who are led by the spirit are like the wind. They don't know where they came from or where they're going. They just know where they are and they trust God to just. That's freedom, baby. We don't have to know anything but him. And somehow in his providential and sovereign care, we become and apprehend all that he wants for us. We're free. Gosh, we're free. So repentance doesn't start with sin. It starts with God. Second, repentance is not merely an apology. Repentance is alignment. You can say sorry to God and not be repentant. We see that in Esau when he became aware of his sin and what had happened, that he had lost the blessing, said that he wept for repentance but could not find it. Why? Because he really wasn't repentant. He just was bummed that he didn't get the blessing. He didn't like the consequence. He wasn't repentant. I would dare say apologizing to God is not really repentance. Repentance is aligning with God. It's aligning our hearts minds, attitudes, and perspectives with the truth of who he is. To align not only with his value system, his value and his ways, but also in the midst of that failure to align my mind and heart with the value that he says that, he ha- that I have, that has nothing to do with my behavior. It has everything to do with Christ's obedience. So it's both and. It is both and. Um, <clears throat> We align ourselves by coming to Jesus, who's the author and perfecter of our faith, remembering the truth and returning in our heart and mind to the reality that we've been made pure and spotless by his blood, that we've been adopted by the Father, that we belong to God, and that we're beloved children, not the products of our own behavior. Praise God. That'll change us. That'll change us. So what hinders this part? Well, it's shame. Shame hinders us from receiving repentance in this way. Why? Because shame doesn't just take ownership of a wrong and lays it at the feet of Jesus. It personifies the wrong and says, I'm bad now. It's actually doing the very thing that Peter was told not to do about the pigs. Do not call common what I've made clean. Do not call common what I have made clean. Shame says, I am bad. I am never going to get better. I am stuck in this forever. I am hopeless, and that only leads to greater self-obsession. Shame is self-obsession. It's weird because it plays us by thinking little of ourselves, but really all we're thinking about is ourselves, which is self-obsession. Jesus came to free us from self-awareness to get lost and transfixed in his face. And we are made to be blissfully unaware of us, open fully to what God's doing and open fully to the person in front of us. I tell you, this is my favorite thing about the gospel. Like, I love that I'm like, you know, he washed me of my junk. He freed me from the power of sin. He healed, healing, all that's great. But I think the most outrageous thing about the gospel is that it frees me from me. So, right, it's so good, right? Anyway, shame hinders, hinders us from walking in repentance. Okay, third little nugget. Repentance, repentance is not committing to God that you're going to try harder. (laughs) Stop doing that. Repentance is not telling God, oh man, I, I totally blew it. I'm not gonna do that again, Lord. I'm not gonna do that again. I will not. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get the covenant eyes on my phone and a flip phone if I have to, and I am not gonna eat that, think that, say that. I am done with the real housewives, Lord. I am over the gossip. I am not gonna do that. That is not repentance. Repentance is not a commitment to try harder. A repentance is a confession of your dependence upon Jesus. 
Repentance is the surrender of your will, not the white knuckle of your will. It is about entrusting the thriving of your life, your progressive living up and into holiness. It's the process of sanctification, wholeness, and freedom, entrusting that entirely to the care of Jesus and the outworking of his promises to you. It is absolute confession that I cannot do it. I am incapable of walking in freedom, but I confess that you long for my neediness. See, this is a lie, lie, lie. And no one will outright say it this, well, maybe some real silly people would, but most people don't say this, but they live like this. This is a lie. The goal of the Christian life is not to mature so much into looking like Jesus that you cease needing him. If your theology or the podcasts or sermons you listen to are telling you that you can become equal, then that's an antichrist spirit. I'm just telling you straight up. Jesus himself, who actually was equal, didn't even consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yeah, I don't know where this is coming from. <laughs> As I've walked with the Lord... And, and I've, I have some history under my belt, but I'm even looking at people who have way more history than me. The longer you walk with Jesus, and actually the more you look like him, the more you're aware of your need for him. And the more your prayer life sounds like, help, help, help. But this is the beauty of maturing in Christ. You just get really comfortable always knowing you need him. That's no longer a threat to you or your own pride. It actually is a source of confidence because you know he has got your back because you've seen it over and over and over again that he shows up, that he will not leave you or forsake you, that he has your back, that he's committed to you, that he's for you and not against you. Repentance is a confession of our need for God. So what's what hinders this form? Well, duh, it's pride. If shame says, I'm not worth the help, pride is, I don't need the help. You, this junk, I almost said something else, this junk has infiltrated the church. If you go to a Christian bookstore, it is seven steps to freedom and five keys to wholeness, and it is, oh, are there principles of wisdom? For sure. Are there kingdom principles? Of course, but man, we don't need keys and steps. We need Jesus. We need a savior. We need a Lord who is in us to will and to do according to his pleasure. Um, we can't, we're, we don't have the power to honestly say, that won't happen again. I won't do that again. That's actually beyond us. We don't have that kind of power in and of ourselves, but Christ in us he can do it. If you grew up with someone who had authority in the church telling you something like this, God helps those who helps themselves. You got yourself into this mess, but God helps those who helps themselves. Or you tell yourself, I got myself into this mess, I'm gonna have to get myself out of it. Then repent. Yeah. Repent. He doesn't help those who help themselves. He helped those who rejected and hated him. And you did get yourself into that mess. But this is why he's a savior and why we need one. <laughs> Repentance requires our partnership, though. Right? It's a gift. But it does require partnership. We, we do have to receive the gift. Um, and it's specifically partnership with the conviction of the Spirit. I love the conviction of the Spirit. I I, this is language that I have adopted from... Um, Melissa Smith, but um, this is a sword. Oh, okay, my, it came off. This is a sword, <laughs> right? And this sword wounds us sometimes. It also reminds us of things sometimes. But I, I want to be one in Melissa's language that kisses the sword. I think there's power in agreement. Remember, repentance is alignment. And when God, by the word, or by the spirit, or through his voice in another human being 
puts his finger on something and says, man, this is off. This isn't life. I want to be quick to go, okay, okay. Yes, what do I do, Lord? Help me. Lord, I want, I, I want the gift of repentance. Let me, I'm not seeing you rightly here. Somehow, something else has clouded my view of what's real of you, me, or them. Help me. I want to see rightly. And we allow him to instruct us and lead us into life. See, the interesting thing about the conviction of the Spirit is that he convicts in two different things. Well, technically three, but two that I'll hit on. He convicts, he convicts of sin. If there's sin in our life, he convicts us. His nature is inside of us. And when we act, think, and speak outside of that nature, something in us goes, Mm-mm, no, no, not good. And we feel that, oof, that's not good. Like, and it's weird as we've journeyed with the Lord. There, there's a song that's popular on the radio right now. I won't tell you what it is. But it comes on. Nothing is explicitly wrong about this song necessarily. Maybe a, a little. I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Whatever. But something about that song makes my insides go, ooh, I feel defiled by it. And anytime that song comes on, I just, I turn the radio off. I can't, I can't listen to it. And is the song overtly sinful? Probably not. But for me, there's conviction there. And so I lean in and I'm just like, I don't want to partner with that. So it's not just about not doing wrong things. It's sometimes about not doing the right thing or just doing whatever he asks of you, right? It's not just avoiding whatever's bad. But he does convict us of sin. He convicts us of um, ways in which we're to cooperate in the world. But he also convicts us of righteousness. It's both and. This is John 16, 8, that he convicts of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I love that when I'm having a cruddy day, like, listen, I'm human. Like, I get into, I'm so intimidated. There's a room of however many of y'all. I don't, I'm like, this is intimidating. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can get insecure and in my head. I feel so vulnerable all of the time. All the time. I feel overwhelmed all of the time. But I love the conviction of the Spirit when I hear those moments when I feel inadequate. And then he whispers, I've called you and I'm faithful. You're qualified because of me. Don't fear their faces. I've made your forehead like flint. You know, these little where he convicts me of what's true about him and me in a way that actually allows me to, again, be free of me, to stand in whatever he's called us in. It's cooperating with his conviction in both sin and righteousness. How do we do that? We do that by taking ownership of our wonky thinking, our wonky actions. When we sin, if we sin, not when, if we sin. We have an advocate, praise God. We have one who sympathizes in our weakness, but we have to take ownership of that sin and confess it. Why? Because you can't surrender something you haven't first owned. Did you hear that? You can't surrender something you don't have. And part of surrendering your sin, your failure to Jesus is taking ownership that, yeah, I did that. Yeah, I thought that. Yeah, I'm operating from that system. Yes, I did have that motive. It's confessing to Jesus our bad behavior, selfish motives, wasted words, a.k.a. our sin. We can't surrender. Oh, I just said that. Um, And so sometimes this requires the presence of another person. Sometimes we just do that with God. It's just when his assessment comes and he convicts us, we go, you're right. I'm acting selfish here. You're right, I'm totally self-seeking here. You're right, I totally should not have gone to that bar, ate that thing, looked at that website, whatever. You're right, Lord. I should not have done that. Thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. Lord, would you come and wash me once again with the water of your word? Would you once again reveal your worth to me? Would you show me how you're actually better than that thing or that person or that motive? Or can you, I need you to see rightly. Help me. But we also cooperate by taking ownership of our identity in the midst of the ownership of our failure. Because we're not the products of our behavior. We're the products of his obedience. 
So we take ownership in the midst of our confession of sin. We take ownership of our identity as beloved children of God and the pure and spotless bride of Christ. (laughs) This is so good. We allow the sorrow to transform into gratitude and thanksgiving that he had already made provision for what I just became aware of. We allow him to remind us by his spirit, his voice, his word, through the words of other people, what is absolutely unequivocally true of us. And that's that we're loved and accepted in the beloved. So we own our sin, we confess it, and then we profess our identity. And we invite Jesus to speak to us, to remind us, and to instruct us in pathways of life. So this process, um, it's one that is very much centered in prayer. And it's a process that goes from your head, no, excuse me, from your heart, to your head, to your will, to your lips, to your life. Okay? Heart, head, wait, what is it? Heart, head, will, lips, life. Heart, head, will, lips, life. Okay? So we start by regularly coming before the Lord as we're reading the scripture, as we're spending time with Jesus, and we invite the Spirit of God to search us. We learn this from the man after God's own heart. Search me and try me. See if there's anything weird in me, anything that's not aligned, anything that's off. I want you to know me, Lord. If there's anything in me that doesn't please you or look like you, I want I want you to expose it. When we're reading the scripture and we're just happily reading along and then all of a sudden something goes patunk and you're like, oh no. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, I just did that to my wife. Oh God, you know, whatever. <clears throat> then you invite the spirit. Excuse me. <clears throat> you invite the spirit to give you and administer the gift of repentance. Okay, so it starts in prayer. The Spirit convicts our hearts with his voice, his word, and through his people. He's given us hearts of flesh that are now tender to that conviction. Before it landed on deaf ears. He could convict, 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 but it was stone. Now we have hearts of flesh. If you feel that tinge, that just means you're alive in Christ. Praise God, you have a heart of flesh. He convicts our hearts. As we become aware of his conviction in our heart, we then align or agree with our mind, with his truth about the thing, but also his truth about us. Remember, ownership of sin, ownership of identity. Sometimes, sometimes this part of the process requires outside help. Sometimes there's stuff that's so intertwined in us that we actually have to receive ministry and help from an elder, a pastor, a therapist, a counselor, someone that is, you know, hopefully filled with the Spirit of God and can impart that um, instruction and wisdom. But sometimes bringing our mind into alignment, we can feel the conviction, but our mind just, there's scaffolding there that needs to be kind of identified and dismantled. So sometimes we actually need some help and this process can kind of go on for a while. And that doesn't mean anything's wrong. It means that you're on the journey as a pilgrim in the pilgrimage of faith. It's okay. Like I, there were things, listen, let me be honest with you. I, almost my entire adulthood until the last few years, starting around probably 12, 13, was marked by addiction to something. This is the weird thing about sin. It, you might conquer it in one manifestation and it just changes form and comes out a different way right? Addicted to sex, to pornography, to cigarettes, to alcohol. Didn't really do the whole, I mean, I did drugs, but I wasn't necessarily addicted to drugs, praise God. But there was addiction. I was addicted to relationships. I was in codependent relationships where I was addicted to the person I was in a relationship with. I was marked, my life was marked by addiction in some form or fashion. And I was so aware of it And yet, the harder I tried to overcome the addiction, maybe for a little bit, I would actually, through sheer grit and willpower, avoid it. But then once that kraken was released again, I doubled down on a 
binger, man, that actually left me even more in shame, feeling more disgusted with myself because I just, it just kept on getting deeper and deeper and I got more and more lost. And I can remember during that journey praying to God, I want to love what you love and I want to hate what you hate. Give me a hatred for what I clearly love. I love cigarettes, but give me a hatred for cigarettes. I love getting drunk, but give me a hatred for getting drunk. I cannot stop. I feel powerless. Help me, help me. And I would cry out tears, and I would mourn, and so often the comforter would come. And was it fixed overnight? Absolutely not. I can tell you, in the last few years, I just realized this just like a couple weeks ago. Oh, my gosh. I can stand before you today and say, I have no, at least none that I'm aware of, I have no addictions in my life. I am not, <laughs> I know. I did not think that was possible, like at all. I have no conscious awareness of any addiction. I don't need something or someone each and every day to make it feel like the day was worth it. I'm free. I'm the freest I've ever been, y'all. But I'm 40. I'm 40. And it started at 14. Maybe a little bit before. It's been a process. It's been a journey. And just because the potter's taking time with his piece of clay doesn't mean you're not in the process. This is why repentance is the whole of our life, not a moment. Because really, it's not necessarily about just getting free. It's about the fullness of knowing God. And I am so grateful. Would not go back. Thankful it's over. But I am so grateful for so many dark nights. Y'all, they were tough. I mean, it's, it's, I'm not going to glamorize it. It was more painful. It hurt so deeply. Being so aware of my brokenness. So in touch with specific longings that I knew were wicked, but that if they weren't met, I didn't know how I was going to survive. I mean, it's real. And in those moments, God coming to me, and I learned him as father through the process. I learned him as the lover of my soul through the process. I received him as my advocate and intercessor and learned to be an advocate and intercessor through the process I'm thankful to be free, but the treasure isn't just the fact that I'm not smoking cigarettes anymore. The treasure is that I know him. <clears throat> so the spirit convicts our hearts. We then align and agree with our mind, with the truth of what he's assessing and the truth of what he's telling us about ourselves. And then we surrender our will to receive his grace. We confess that we... Um, uh, need his help, that we cannot do it. We lay our will down at his feet so that his, he can be in us to will and to do. And sometimes we have to do that over and over and over and over again. We confess with our mouth our need of him. We confess the sufficiency of his work on the cross. We get real nasty with anything in us or around us that would tell us otherwise. We get real aggressive about confessing the sufficiency of his work and the power of his blood. And we boldly look in the mirror and we confess to ourselves, you are pure and spotless because Jesus has washed you clean. Just because your feet get dirty does not mean you need to take a bath. You just need your feet dusted off. And sometimes we walk into stuff and then we get into a whole shame spiral because we think all of a sudden now we're filthy and we need a shower. No, you just need to wash your feet off, right? He's washed you clean by the word that he's spoken. We're clean, but sometimes we just need to dust ourselves off a little bit. He does that. He washes our feet. Praise God. And then we return. We return to the cross. We pick up ours. Sometimes he does lead us to do certain things to cooperate with freedom, lay things down, walk away from relationships, avoid certain environments, places, and people. We have to follow his instruction step by step. <clears throat> and we embrace our identity as his beloved. And then lastly, we walk in freedom. We allow 
the journey and the story to become a wellspring of thanksgiving. That we allow where there was potential for guilt to actually be an overflow of gratitude. We're daily transformed into his image by looking at him and letting him look at us and tell us um, who he is. And so, team, if you'd come back up, um, we're going to repent together. And I hope after framing it some, this is exciting for us. Um, If you'd stand with me while they come up.